When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Deep Dives podcast here on the No Ceilings NBA Podcast Network. I'm your host, Nick Agar-Johnson, and I'm very excited to have back in the house for the first time in a few months, the former co-host of the former NBA Deep Dives podcast, Tyler Metcalf. Tyler, how are you doing this fine afternoon? Nick, I'm fantastic. The, the sun is shining. The draft guide is out. We're almost at the draft, which is just wild. We, we got early entrant withdrawal deadline tomorrow. Just Just a wonderful time of the year. That delayed pause said everything. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's a busy time of year, and certainly it's a fun time of year as well as we get closer and closer to the draft. And as you mentioned, I was going to do a little housekeeping up top, but you already started, so we can go ahead from there. The No Ceilings 2023 NBA Draft Guide came out on Monday, so a couple days before you're listening to this. If you have not checked that out, please go ahead and check that out. It's $10 of 124 pages of incredible info and stats and write-ups on 60 of the top prospects in this draft. So it was a ton of fun to put together. It was an experience to edit the whole thing down. And it's just so beautiful. And I'm so proud of what we all produced. So if you have not checked that out, please go ahead and do that. We also have new merchandise available on the No Ceilings NBA.bigcartel store. So please go check that out as well if you haven't. Now that all the bookkeeping is done, we are going to go and talk about Tyler, your most recent piece on Scoot Henderson, which combined two of my favorite things in the world, Scoot Henderson and the Pixar film Inside Out. So let's just sort of get started with a general topic. How did you come to the brilliant conclusion that Scoot Henderson should be compared to Inside Out? Um, well, just every time I watched him is just picking up him doing different things on the court, whether it's playmaking or scoring or shooting or you know, playing off ball and setting off ball screens and cutting, or even just some of the de defensive flashes is like, okay, these are all bits and pieces that when put together form an NBA superstar or franchise cornerstone and all NBA type guard, which a lot of us expect and think scoop can grow into. And then, you know, just trying to tie it into some sort of uh, media or, you know, just have a little Who fun. Are with you, it. Albert? <laughs> Just, just trying to have a little fun with it. And the first thing that came to mind was Inside Out and just Riley's journey of uh, all of her different emotions, kind of learning how to work together for her to become this really well-rounded person. I won't go too much psych major nerd corner here on this <laughs> movie, but I just have to say up top that this is just an absolutely beautiful film. If you have not seen Inside Out, do yourself the do yourself the favor of taking 95 minutes out of your life to watch this film and then go back and read Metcalf's piece. Or if you've already read it, read it again and see all the comparisons to this beautiful film. Now we're going to start here with joy, which is, you know, the primary emotion I think most draft evaluators feel when they're watching Scoot Henderson's game. And 
the facet of his game that you compared to Joy was his playmaking. And I think that is just so fitting. It's so interesting to sort of view how different point guard prospects, you know, view the concept of how much am I supposed to create for myself versus how much am I supposed to create for others. And with Scoot, it's something that so clearly is just a joy for him and for his teammates to spread the ball around, you know, to have a little bit of love for everybody rather than just, you know, Scoot taking over and uh, putting up 35 points by himself. You know, he's also someone who is more than happy to dish out dimes and has the skill set to dish out some really spectacular passes. Yeah, and just when I was pairing all these with the, you know, the the characters from the movie, it wasn't that, you know, that this skill necessarily elicits that emotion. I, and we'll get into it later, but like, I I don't experience sadness generally when I watch Scoot defend. So just getting that out of the way, but you you do experience a lot of joy when when you watch Scoot's playmaking. But the the character, you know, she was kind of described as trying to. F- or that she saw every obstacle as an opportunity to get the best out of a situation. And that's really how I feel and react to Scoot's playmaking, where no matter what the cover pick and roll coverage is, no matter what the defensive rotation is, Scoot's constantly finding ways to counter it, dissect it and generate an incredible shot for anyone on his team in basically any area of the floor. Now, something that you get into before we get into some of the film here is something that I think is fascinating with Scoot Henderson in particular. So the comparison between year one and year two playing for the G League Ignite, right? And, you know, last year he was a 17-year-old playing in a professional league, one of the better professional leagues in the world. But, you know, his offense wasn't quite as efficient as some might have wanted. Let's just put it that way. And... You know, in year two, we saw obvious growth in his game in a multitude of areas. But, you know, you mentioned a few numbers in the piece that I think are very telling, where in year one, his overall possessions and assists generated 1.134 points per possession. So 28th percentile per synergy in the half court, 23rd percentile. This year, we're up to 1.178 points per possession overall. So 60th percentile and 55th percentile in the half court. So basically he went from, you know, pretty well below average in terms of the sort of basic synergy playmaking stats to, you know, decently above average as again, an 18 year old point guard playing in a league of grown men and professionals. So it's something where we sort of saw him, you know, show bits and pieces of that last year, but this year is where we really saw him, you know, become, become more of a primary playmaker. Whereas last year, you know, the ball was in Jane Hardy's hands. Some, you know, he wasn't always the primary guy this year. He was the alpha and the omega of that team. And, you know, we saw it through his scoring obviously, but his passing, I think is where he took really a, you know, as we can tell by the numbers, a pretty noticeable leap. Yeah. And I I think it's important to note that a big reason for that jump was just the, the massive leap in overall usage that Mm -hmm. he experienced this year. But it was also just an improvement in decision-making and versatility and his ability to generate the best shot possible on nearly every possession as the lead guy. When you look at this team too, the only shooter on that team is John Jenkins. There was the, the floor spacing on that team was awful. And the fact that he was able to generate the assist numbers and points and all of that stuff that he did, I think is an even bigger Testament to how, mature his overall floor general ability his playmaking his decision making his feel for the game really is yeah eric mika did a lot i think to help this team in terms of Mm -hmm. just being you know a mature solid you know role man kind of center but he's not picking and popping exactly right he's not someone who's going to space the floor for you 
Yeah, exactly. I and mean, he he had some nice playmaking instincts. You know, he kind of allowed Scoot to um, really maximize his cutting and all that kind of stuff. But in the pick and roll game, all he really offered was the rolling and passing out of the short roll and mainly to cutters because there weren't really any off ball shooting threats. Uh, earlier in the season, we saw some you know growing uh, synergy between Scoot and um, Abu Gidi, but. You know, unfortunately, he suffered another knee injury, so that kind of took away any vertical spacing that that team even had. Yeah, I mean, this team, you know, honestly, the best vertical spacers were probably, I mean, probably Scoot, honestly, with, you know, C.D. Sissoko and Leonard Miller being second. But, you know, with C.D., the shot improved as the year went on, but he never got to the point where he was like, okay, this is our knockdown guy, right? And for Leonard Miller, the jump shot has been one of the biggest problems, basically, his entire evaluation process. Yeah, I mean, I, I would go as far to say Leonard's a non-shooter at this point in his career. Uh, CD was really hit or miss. The mechanics seemed to kind of be all over the place. But like you said, it they they took steps in the right direction as the year went on. And then even Mojave King, who I think is one of the best cutters in this draft class, the outside shot just never really got there for him. And it was weird because it never it was one of those things where it, the numbers never really felt like they aligned with the tape. Like I never left a game watching him being like, oh, God, his shot's busted and then you look at the percentages it's like oh cool he's 30 percent on you know three and a half attempts a game not great um so the fact that that never came around which i think would have done a whole lot of wonders just for that offense and scoots you know overall playmaking numbers i i think that was a real blow to this team yeah i would have liked to see a better season for mojave king i still have hope but i shed a little bit of the hope that i had heading into the season but you know that's that's a different conversation with scoot you know you close out the playmaking section with amy poehler's description of the character of joy which you complained compared playmaking to joy being the engine keeps everyone moving and happy and yeah there we go that's Scoot henderson right you know he's not again you know gonna dominate the offense and you know not look for other guys it's not me 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 with scoot and we can see that you know by the way that you know, first of all, he was a willing passer, but, you know, as we mentioned with all the shooting concerns, he was a willing passer to guys who weren't, you know, quite necessarily the talents that he needed around him, right? You know, he was, he was still trying to make those plays, even if, you know, there might've been times when he would have been better off just, you know, keeping the ball attacking himself. But, you know, that's the kind of thing where he's shown such a maturity with his willingness and ability to pass that, you know, it makes it easy to sort of project that, okay, he's going to be, you know, I think there are some people who don't, you know, quite view him as, you know, a passing point guard. And that's not, that's not really the the deal here. He's like, he's good enough as a scorer that sure, you can call him a combo guard if you want to, but that just elides, you know, one of the best parts of his skill set. Yeah. And, and that his versatility and willingness to play all these different roles is another reason why I wanted to frame the piece in this kind of fashion, because if the team needs a playmaker and a floor general, he can act as that. If they need him, if no one's shot is falling and they need him to take over the scoring role, he can do that. If they need him to lock in as a point of attack defender, he can do that. Um, I mean, in the Metropolitans games at the beginning of the year, Scoot obviously put up monster points, but there were long stretches, and especially in that first game where John Jenkins was scorching hot from three and Scoot just kept running play after play to get J- Jenkins open shots. Um, So just, he has that understanding of who's hot, who needs the ball, how to get his teammates going and just elevate the overall offense by making sure that everyone's kind of getting their touches, getting in their rhythm and getting the best shots possible. And we'll probably circle back to this again later on, but you know, something that also came up in the group article that we wrote recently about what the Charlotte Hornets should do at number two overall 
part of what you mentioned is exactly what you you know noted in that article, namely the quote unquote fit concerns around him and Labella Ball not working together are overblown. Quite, I mean, almost certainly overblown. You know, based on the sort of general discourse around it. Whereas I think you and I both would think that actually the fit with Scoot and Labella is a lot better than people seem to think it is. Yeah, I mean, I, I made a lot of Hornet fans. Uh, you know, I, I, I became friends with them uh, pretty quickly when I when I tweeted out that you know Lamella Ball would hold me back from drafting Scoot. Um, I have some hesitations about the fit, and none of it's really because of Scoot. Um, but I'd still try it at the very least. I'm trying it, and then going from there, I, I think Scoot's that good of a player, and theoretically. Lamelo, you know, given his size, given the, the the way his shots developed, theoretically that could and should work pretty well. Well, if you have absolutely no reading comprehension, the title for the next section would actually seem like it's about Lamelo Ball rather than about Scoot Henderson. The next section is his defense, and you compared his defense to the character of Sadness. So now all the Hornets fans can hate on me instead of you. <laughs> so you're welcome for that one. But also the concept that you have here is, you know, the character of sadness in the film that Henderson's defense aligns with character sadness because it is misunderstood and too frequently misused. So yeah, you know, that makes a lot of sense within the movie. You, you go a bit in on the character of sadness in a way that I wouldn't quite have gone so far in, but you know, the idea being that, you know, sadness is an emotion that Riley in the movie has to learn to understand, you know, why she feels it, why it's there and why it's important as opposed to just, you know, sort of ignoring it as, oh, you know, that's, that's sadness. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to deal with that. Just, you know, push it off to the side, right? That's, that's not really the, you know, the emotional purpose of sadness going into psych major corner again. But, you know, the purpose of sadness in the movie as well is not, you know, it's not saying that Scoot's defense makes us sad. Again, you know, reading comprehension, it's a really important skill. Yeah. And, you know, if it, never does get properly implemented and utilized, you know, that, that, then it will elicit some sadness because it wasn't really good for most of the year, but it is kind of this missing piece that once he figures out how to really implement it uh, consistently on a game by game basis, that's where his upside gets really, really scary because we did, you know, there, it wasn't for a lack of flashes this year. There were certainly flashes, especially in that Metropolitan's game um, where when he locked in, he was, you know, making timely rotations, jumping passing lanes, moving his feet, using his strength to bump guys off drives, um, you know, getting physical with guys sliding over screens. He's shown enough that he is a very good defender when he wants to be. It's just that old cliche of, you know, when he wants to be. So we've seen a ton of guys uh, in their pre-draft year, experience similar things and then kind of grow in and then you know mold those flashes into sustained stretches i'm hoping that we get that from scoot uh because he has all, all the tools to and if he really does so that's where the the all nba guard stuff really really starts to come into play it'll inter- it'll be interesting to see sort of where he ends up team wise in terms of how that works because i feel like you know in different contexts like say the charlotte hornets you know he'll probably be relied upon more defensively than I mean, you know, he'd be, it's not like, you know, either the Rockets or the Pistons or the Trailblazers have particularly fantastic defenses. So wherever he ends up, you know, he's probably going to be asked to do a lot on the defensive end, but definitely I think, you know, in Charlotte, he would be tasked as the primary guard defender. And hopefully, you know, he'd put a little bit more effort in on that side of the ball, because as you said, when, you know, cliche card bingo, sure. But when he's really locked in, he's spectacular. And 
that's the kind of thing where, you know, maybe in a different environment, he would, you know, lock in a little bit more. He certainly seemed like, you know, in the bigger G League Ignite games, like the Metropolitan's yeah. game that you mentioned, he really put in the effort, which, you know, on the one hand, maybe isn't the best sign for, you know, oh, we hope that he actually puts in his effort in, you know, game 76 against the Houston Rockets, right? But, you know, the idea being that when it really matters, he clearly has shown that he can lock in and be something special on that end of the floor. Yeah, and, and his defense honestly gives me a lot of Anthony Edwards vibes where on the big games and the brighter lights, bigger matchups, Ants showed that he can be a really, really good defender. Uh, the off-ball stuff is way more inconsistent than the on-ball stuff. And we kind of saw that same thing with Scoot this year where he would get lost off-ball, he would lose track of his guy, you know, get caught ball-watching, get back-cut, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but big possessions when he was defending point of attack – um, he, that, that's when we saw him get low in his stance, move his feet, get over screens, recover rim side, do all that kind of stuff. So I, I think it's more, I think there's a lot more to his defense than just the flashes that we saw. I think that he should be a really good defender. And, you know, when we look at some of those landing spots, like Charlotte, or maybe even if he falls to four to Houston, I trust Steve Clifford and Ime Adoka to get the most out of him defensively because they have a pretty good track record of doing that with their players. And I mean, you mentioned Anthony Edwards, you know, the difference as well between year one, Anthony Edwards defense versus, you know, year three, Anthony Edwards defense is pretty dramatic. And I don't know. I mean, with Scoot, you know, it's not like he took a big step forward with his defense from year one to year two, like he did with his passing, but you know, I think the flip side of that also is, you know, if he's in an environment where defense is emphasized as opposed to your, like the entire engine of our offense, please just score. And we'll, we'll worry about the defensive stuff. You just go, you just go ahead and run the, run the show offensively. Right. You know, I think in an environment where there's a little more support around him, where the context for what he's asked to do is a little bit different. There's a lot of reason to be hopeful that, you know, he'll be less ball watchy and more spectacular on the defensive end. Yeah. I, it, the, 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 just how much him becoming a good defender just absolutely changes the outlook of what he could be as a player. And I, I know the, the pushback on that is, oh, well, point of attack defense doesn't really matter. I've always thought that that argument was nonsense. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, I think year over year now, we've seen how important and how kind of game-changing uh, high-level point of attack defenders are. And then when you also have that same guy being your – you you know your, your offensive engine on the other end that that's where you talk about okay now we're building a title contender so when we're talking about you know taking the effort and making most of the effort offensively rather than you know putting in all the effort defensively that kind of vaguely leads into the next section and i'm just going to lead off with lewis black's quote about the character of anger here he knows the group is well-meaning and they try hard but they don't get how things should work as well as he does and this is what you compared to Scoot's on-ball scoring. And that kind of fits in with a lot of what we've just been talking about, right? Of uh, You know, he was more than happy to, you know, share the load, you know, pass the ball around, you know, be a good playmaker, keep the engine running. But uh, there were quite a few times when things weren't working and Scoot just did the Thanos meme, fine, I'll do it myself. Yeah, and it's, his first instinct isn't necessarily to take over as that, you know, volume scorer, but once he starts setting guys up and their shots aren't falling and they need to get back in the game quickly, he's like, all right, scoot time. And he go- just goes to work. He gets to the rim at will. Um, his understanding of finishing angles around the rim is really absurd. And 
he has the skill and touch to finish with both hands um, around defenders at really unique angles. It's just really, really special stuff. And, you know, something else that we, you know, I mentioned with the passing earlier, the numbers you cited about his sort of jump from year one to year two, year one, 49% at the rim in the half court, year two, 58.5%. That's, that's a pretty sizable jump, right? And it's, you know, it's not just that it's a sizable jump, right? It's a jump from, you know, right around average-ish for a guard to really special for a six foot two point guard. And, you know, that's, that's the kind of distinction that we're talking about that takes players from being, you know, really solid, good players to being all-star, all-NBA type guys. Yeah. And the, 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 the argument of, oh, you can find a six, two guard anywhere. It's like, you can't find this one anywhere. <laughs> and the, the fact that he's finishing almost 60% at the rim as an 18 year old against grown men fighting for their NBA lives it's it's absurd. I mean, you you just combine the the six nine wingspan with the linebacker build that he has, and his the the understanding of angles, and this year how he implemented that change of pace, and then you know going from zero to sixty back down to zero, and then changing angles and finishing at um, you know on the other side of the rim when the defenders already left his feet. It's like oh my god, height does not matter in this realm for him like it does for so many other guys. I mean, you probably are sick of me talking about this at this point because I've mentioned it 7,000 times on this particular podcast, but that was something that was very clear to see with De'Aaron Fox's development where year one, you know, he just was 100 miles an hour all the time, all the time. And that worked sometimes because he's faster than everybody else in the league, but there were times that it didn't work when defenders anticipated and he didn't have that sort of change of pace in his game until, you know, really started to be year three when he really started to develop that. And of course that was his, you know, breakout year, right? The thing with Scoot is he has this at 18. Yeah. (laughs) Like, you know, he, he has the kind of change of speed, you know, veteran sort of way to attack the game and attack the basket that, You'd like to see, you know, like I was happy to see from Darren Fox by, you know, year three in his early 20s, right? This is an 18-year-old doing this against, as you mentioned, guys who are desperately fighting for their chance to make the NBA. Yeah, and, and guys who have played together before in more mm-hmm. set defenses and more controlled defenses and higher experience levels. Um, and then just his deceleration, it's not just the fact that he's going from 60 to zero. It's the fact that he also has the strength where when he lowers his shoulder and shrugs you off, you're going an extra four feet and you have no chance of recovering. That's just such a unique combination that we don't see from guys usually until they're 22, 23, 24 years old. And, you know, on the verge of entering their prime, he's entering the NBA and he has it. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can think back, I mean, I can just go through multiple Kings point guards who showed up in the league, you know, very, very skinny. And, you know, over time they sort of developed into, okay, this guy's got the kind of body where he can attack the basket. Scoot is coming into the league again, not just with that change of pace stuff, but you know, the six, nine wingspan is sort of helpful in, you know, offsetting the six, two height. But really the thing is, as you mentioned, the dude is built like a linebacker, right? He's six two, 200 pounds. And he's not, you know, he's not going to be slowed down by guys in the NBA to the degree that, you know, say a Tyrese Halliburton was when he tried to drive to the desk in year one, right? He's coming into the league with a kind of, you know, grown man strength that we hope for a lot of point guard prospects to develop, right? A lot of the stuff with Scoot is normally with a point guard prospect, you hope that they get there, right? Yeah. Scoot's already there with a lot of this stuff. And, you know, the size and strength and ability to attack the basket at multiple different speeds is definitely one of those things. 
Yeah, and, and just another important facet of it is that it obviously helps him finishing through contact and all that stuff at the rim, but it also gives him such an advantage in the pick and roll where that first step burst, when he comes off a screen, immediately gets in front of the defender, but then he has the frame and the strength and the footwork and the patience to really put the guy in jail and not let them recover back rim side, and he's patient and snakes his way through the lane and either gets into that mid-range floater or mid-range step back or, you know, shows a secondary burst to get to the rim or create for someone else. So it's a strength and power that makes him an incredible at rim finisher, but also gives him so much creativity and craft and guile in the mid range that just puts his primary defender in absolute hell. So now let's move from the on ball offense to the off ball offense. And your first section in this part of the piece, which is fear. Fear is what you've compared to off-ball offense. I just want to read this because I'm not going to say it any better than this. Most primary ball handlers succumb to fear and are unwilling to cede control of the offense. They see the shortcomings of their teammates and fail to recognize the importance of playing off-ball. When fear and anger find synergy with each other, they help Riley properly determine her fight-or-flight response. Most primary initiators like Westbrook, Luka Doncic, and Trey Young have failed to find the synergy. Henderson has already achieved it. And that, I think, goes back to a whole lot of what we've been talking about for the past 25 minutes, right, of there are things that you hope and expect your young point guard to develop over time that Scoot Henderson already has full-fledged 18 years old. Yeah, and it's just another testament to his his just feel for the game and understanding of how every square inch of the court operates and how it can best be maximized. Um, So often when we watch these guys in their pre-draft year um and it specifically the the primary initiators um it's always on ball stuff and then we they give up the ball and we get bored and you know stop paying attention to what they're doing because the entire intrigue of them is what can they do with the ball how are they going to run the offense but what that limits is how easily and how malleable they are to fit into an offense and So often we see that the entire offense and the rest of the team has to be built around them with scoot. You can take him and throw him in anywhere because he, he can be that primary initiator, but his willingness to, you know, just simple giving goes, uh, you know, backdoor cut, he'll set off ball screens and then, you know, sprint off a DHO and then turn that into a driving kick. It just gives you so much more flexibility and creativity and just upside for your offense that so many primary initiators never do, at least until they're in their mid-20s. Stunningly, so far, unless I'm forgetting something, we have not mentioned the word footwork. So now we have uh, deep dive fans. You can go ahead and take a drink for the drink game. But, you know, we we did mention cutting, and that's, you know, something else that you and I have waxed poetic about time and time again. And With Scoot, you know, as you mentioned in the piece, he only cut on 4% of his possessions, but he was in the 95th percentile as a cutter, right? And that, I think, you know, says a lot about, you know, what we were talking about earlier with the fit with the Hornets, right? He's someone who, you know, he didn't play off ball much this year because why would the Ignite play him off the ball, right? right? But, you know, well, other than when C.D. Sissoko is running the offense, sure, (laughs) okay. But, you know, with scoot going to his next nba team you know even if it's not charlotte where you know it seems pretty clear that there's a point guard who has some established you know entrenched Mm -hmm. love within the city right you know it's if he goes to portland and they don't trade damian lillard which you know that's that's its own sort of kettle of fish but you know the idea being if he goes to play with either damian lillard or Lamelo ball 
he will be fine when the ball is not in his hands, right? He will have things to do and he will do them well. And the good news with both LaMelo and Damian Lillard as potential, you know, fits alongside him is those are both guys who are, you know, really great off ball shooters too, right? They are spectacular shooters. So that fits in pretty well with Scoot, you know, his mid range shooting numbers were once again, spectacular this year, his three point shooting numbers, not quite there, but you know, the idea being if he's playing with either one of those guys, he's not going to be the primary three point shooter. Right. So most of his off ball work is going to be, you know, okay. Cut to the rim when you get an opportunity and with Damian Lillard drawing defensive attention or Lamella ball drawing defensive attention, there will be lanes for him to cut. Yeah. And you know, I, I, I know shoot or scoots three point percentage, in a vacuum is not what you would want it to be at 32%. But then you look at it, what, what it was in year one, it jumped like 10%. I mean, it went from 20 yeah. ish percent, give or take, I don't remember off the top of my head to 32%. And then when you just look at his three pointers off the catch is 42.9%, only 21 attempts. So obviously small, small sample size, but it's all trending in the right direction. And just that ability where, defenders will at least have to respect it where they, mm-hmm. they have to at least take that half step on a closeout. That's all scoot needs to then blow by them. And then now he's in a five on four advantage attacking those closeouts. It, it's just so much versatility. And when, when we talk about pairing him with LaMelo or Damian Lillard, he can just take so much of the load off of them and lessen their offensive responsibilities. Maybe that leads to prolonged health. If we're talking about Damian Lillard at, you know, his older age uh, coming off of one of the best seasons of his career. Um, Maybe that leads to a little more focus on the defensive end for LaMelo ball. If he's not having to generate everything on the offensive end, that ability to, let me pivot for a second, but like the, the, the comps where with Westbrook, they make sense, but where they always lose me is when we talk about how they fit into an offense and what Westbrook has been widely derided for, for five, six, seven years now is that once he passes the ball, he doesn't do anything. He just stands there. He doesn't cut. He doesn't screen. There's nothing there. I beg listeners to just go watch a scoot game and watch that. Once he gives that ball up, he's setting a back screen. He's cutting baseline. He's just even just circling out from one wing to the other. There there's obviously there's some stagnation like what there is with every basketball player, but there's never prolonged stretches of him just giving the ball up and standing there and just waiting for it to come back to him. He's either going and getting it or setting up someone else on his team to get it and get that, um, ideal shot it's interesting because i think the first player that comes to mind for most people when you're thinking of point guard relocation is steph curry and Sue henderson is not doing that relocation to get three-point shots right but you know i think you hit the nail on the head with the idea that just because he isn't you know going to be your steph curry relocation kind of shooter doesn't mean he's not doing anything off the ball right just because you're not spacing out to 27 feet doesn't mean that you're not spacing the floor by doing other things when the ball isn't in your hands. And, you know, part of the reason that, you know, and again, this comparison doesn't quite work because they have very different games, but the idea being that, you know, when you have someone like a Steph Curry, you've got to have someone trailing him at all times, right? If you lose him for a second, he will make you pay for it. You know, Scoot's not necessarily going to make you pay for it from 35 feet, but he's going to make you pay for it by cutting to the rim and, you know, blowing by someone getting past, you know, in the perfect spot and finishing over guys because, Hey, you forgot about him for a second. And it's funny because, you know, you and I talked about ad nauseum last season, how 
frustrated we were with how exceptional Kendall Brown was cutting on one end and not on the other end. And, you know, Scoot has a bit of the same sort of feel with his, you know, ball watching tendencies on the defensive end, but it's very clear to see just how well he reads the game in those rare moments where, you know, he doesn't have the ball in his hands. You watch him cutting off ball and he's like, oh, that wouldn't have been a basket if he had been half a step slower, right? If he'd been half a second slower and recognizing what was going on. Yeah, and it just makes life infinitely easier for everyone else. The just the 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 ball movement, the offensive flow, the rhythm that everyone can get in. Everyone's constantly involved in doing something because Scoot is constantly involved in doing something. He doesn't take pos- offensive possessions off. He's not resting in the corner. He's not just standing at the top of the key or near midcourt just waiting for someone to do their thing because he knows that the play isn't designed for it for him specifically he's instead interchanging on the weak side or you know just doing what he can to make sure that the offense achieves achieves its goal and just that selflessness just goes so far in the long-term view of things and just the if your best player is willing to do that stuff what is that going to lead your eighth best player to do Yeah, that I think is the key of, you know, the sort of classic idea of, hey, if your superstar is the first one in and the last one out, everybody else is going to start showing up earlier and leaving later because this is the leader of the team. I look like a jackass if I'm the one leaving two hours before him, right? You know, that's that's the kind of thing where, you know, and we'll get into this more in the next section, certainly, but that's the kind of thing where you are just, you know, glad that you have someone like Scoot Henderson in the building, not just, you know, for the 48 minutes of, you know, the 82 games season regular game, right? Like not, that was completely butchered. Let's try that again. (laughs) Just the idea of, you know, it's not just for all 48 minutes of all 82 regular season games. It's, you know, you know, that when the, when the lights go off, right. You know, he's someone who's going to still be in the gym after the game. And if he's the only one still in the gym after the game, you would hope that over time, everybody else on the team is like, you know, maybe I could stay for an extra hour. You know, if Scoot's staying for an extra hour, maybe I can stay for that extra hour too. Yeah, and it, it's easy for him to hold guys accountable and for coaches to use him as an example because whether it's off court or on court, he's doing it. And he's actively showing that like, yeah, setting screens isn't the sexiest thing in the world, but hey, it works. And if Freed city up for this for this layup on the backdoor cut because i was willing to set that back screen on the baseline and if i hadn't have done that we don't get those two points um it's just an a a selflessness that is really really rare in franchise players um none of this is to say that game on the what your game on the line scoots setting an off-ball screen but on a tuesday night in february that just does wonders to build towards a really versatile and unique and free flowing offense that is absolutely torturous for defenders at, you know, come playoff time. And we've mentioned this time and time again, but it bears repeating, you know, you mentioned this with Russell Westbrook earlier, right? The idea of, you know, once, once the ball's out of his hands, he's done with the play, right? You know, that's the kind of thing that, you know, credit to Russell Westbrook for the spectacular Hall of Fame career that he's yeah. put together. But there's a reason that that complaint has dogged him for the last, you know, six, seven years of his career, right? Scoot is not quite literally, but almost literally half his age and still, you know, doing the kinds of things that people have been hoping to see for Russell Westbrook from years now and not quite getting. Yeah, it's just another testament to his coachability and his willingness to adapt and mold himself into whatever role is necessary for that team and if 
it requires him to be a cutter and let someone else uh, start cooking. You know, say he's with LaMelo Ball in Charlotte or with Damian Lillard in Portland and they're hot. Why He doesn't need to get the ball and take over. He can be that outlet for them away from the ball once those doubles start coming. So it, it just it's just another fascinating aspect of his offense that I, I can't imagine any coach you know, just, I, I imagine they're all just salivating over getting him into their system. All right. We've reached another reading comprehension portion <laughs> of the podcast. So for the emotion of disgust, you have compared it to Scoot Henderson's intangibles. And that is not to call Scoot Henderson's intangibles disgusting, nothing disgusting right. about his intangibles or his work ethic. But the quote that you have at the top of the section, I think, you know, explains why you have listed this here. Disgust ha always has the best of intentions and refuses to lower her standards. That's Pixar describing the character of Disgust. So, yeah, I mean, you know, that's the kind of thing where you would hope that Scoot, you know, anybody that you're drafting with the, you know, high pick, presumably number two or number three, I'm willing to bet a significant amount of money that it'll be, you know, number two or number three that he goes off the board, right? The idea being that Disgust, as you mentioned in the piece, demands the very best for Riley. Right. And Scoot Henderson, you know, the same sort of deal as we've been mentioning, you know, throughout this particular podcast, you know, referencing back to this section at the end, the idea being this is someone who, by all indications, will not settle for anything less than the absolute best that they can be. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that leads someone to join the G League Unite as a 17 year old, too. Right. You know, he's someone who even, you know, as a 17 year old wanted to be in the best situation for himself to grow and develop as a basketball player, even if that was going to be a ridiculously difficult, you know, existence as a 17 year old in a professional league as you know, one of the best players on that team. He's someone who, you know, again, I'm not saying that I know the man personally because I don't, but you know, the idea being every single bit of Intel that seems to be permeating around the draft space is that this is someone who you know, as you mentioned, will put in the work time and time and time again, and is someone who just is a human being that you want on your basketball team. And and it's been that way for years with Scoot, where it, just his work ethic and his maturity, it, it's not like it's, these reports are draft season fodder, where it's like, oh, we got to bump up his stock and get people, you know, really buying in. So let's start leaking some stuff that, oh, he's a great kid. He works so hard. Everyone loves him, yada, yada, yada. <laughs> it's been like that since he was, you know, a sophomore, junior in high school, where it's like this kid is working his ass off. He is outworking everybody. He's coachable. Um, and you, you see the coachability and the different things that he does on the court. But then you hear about it off the court and it, it all lines up it doesn't feel like your standard pr bullshit it it feels like genuine appreciation for how mature this young man is and how hard working he is i mean just look at his physical frame that should tell you enough about how hard he works in the gym um you know coach hart was on the home and away podcast with nathan the other week and just was gushing over this kid and he described him as a third. He seemed like a 30 year old man when he met him for the first time at 17, because he just knows what he wants out of life. And the basketball is the most important thing to him. And everything he does is just demanding perfection. And, you know, you can, you can see it with how he plays, right. You know, it's the idea, you know, we've mentioned time and time again of how many tools you hope your franchise point guard develops by year three 
that Scoot already has, right? And that Scoot already had last year. You know, it's it's the kind of thing where you're that far ahead on the developmental curve that, you know, as you mentioned in the piece, these types of personality traits get overlooked as we get enamored solely with the Encore product. Now, part of that is sometimes you don't know the sort of intel, right? You know, mm -hmm. sometimes you don't get a coach heart to come on home and away and tell everybody that, yeah, you know, what you might be able to gather as contact clues from the way that he plays the game and, you know, his frame, yeah, that's all real. You know, like the context clues that you can gather from that, all that's real. It's not just, you know, this is, you know, not to name anybody in particular, but not to, you know, this is not a dude who's in the gym, you know, working out so that his muscles look good, right? He's in yeah. the gym working out because he wants to be the best basketball player he can be. Yeah, and, and then you even just, in some of the games where he was hurt or just on the bench for because he got subbed out, he's always engaged and what's going on on the court and getting super pumped up. Like Leonard Miller don't, you know, posterizes a guy scoots the first one off, off his feet, you know, losing his mind over it. And he just seems like a joy to play with, not just because he makes everyone on the court better given his, you know, stature and versatility and skill level, but because he's invested in how each of his teammates are helping the overall team succeed. And it, it's just the, when coach Hart described him as, you know, a 30 year old grown man. Um, it, it made a lot of sense because he, that's, that's the way he carries himself and that's the way he acts and he expects perfection on every single game. And he plays that way and he backs it up by playing his butt off on, you know, typically both ends of the floor, especially offense, sometimes on defense. I uh, expect that to change yada, 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 but it, it's, it's leading by example. It's not, showmanship it doesn't feel fake it feels like this is who he is and it's a guy that again head coaches have to just be dreaming of getting on their roster because he's proven he's coachable and bringing that in as your leader whether you're you know an infusion of that character with the hornets or the rockets hard not to get really excited about that being your new leader going forward um and then even just even if he does go to the trailblazers pairing that with Dame. Like, it's a dream. All right. So before we wrap up, you sort of led in this direction. So I'm going to keep going all the way. As of the time that you are listening to this, we are 23 days from the NBA draft. And so aggregators, this is the section that you want to listen to because <laughs> I'm curious, what do you think will actually happen with Scoot Henderson on draft night? Um. Well, I mean, I, I've been trying to infect the entire world at this point with my, with my dream of the Timberwolves trading up or trade trading Carl Anthony towns and moving up to get him. Um, I, I still think he goes to, to Charlotte. Um, I, I think he's too good to pass up. I know some people are, have moved Brandon Miller up to two, uh, some a lot longer ago. I love Brandon Miller. I think he's an awesome player. I've had him really high all season. Um, I can understand the argument for it because it's a wings league. Scoot Henderson's special. It's just as simple as that. He would go number one in any other class that didn't have Victor Wembanyama or Luka Doncic. It's it's that it's that simple. He he is a franchise altering player, a franchise altering person, and if you pass on him, I I think you're really gonna regret it. So you mentioned Luka Doncic um, <laughs> in the what should the Hornets do at number two overall article, I voiced the concern that I've had growing since the draft lottery, which is that the Hornets are going to take Brandon Miller and it's going to be a mistake. That's what it seems like. I mean, 
yeah. there are a lot of reports that Charlotte is queuing in on Brandon Miller, that consensus thinking is leaning towards the Hornets taking Brandon Miller. From a fit standpoint, I, I think it makes a lot of sense. And I don't think the, the Hornets will be getting a bad player by any means in Brandon Miller. This isn't a, an anti-Brandon Miller take. This is a insanely yeah, pro-scoot take. take. <laughs> and I, I think you just you have to at least try it with Scoot and LaMelo. Um, I think the ceiling is you have one of the most fun backcourts in the entire league uh, under team control for the next eight years, uh, which is really exciting. Uh, the worst case is LaMelo puts up good numbers and you can trade him for a bunch of pieces and really kick kickstart that rebuild. I'm a little lower on LaMelo. I think he's a really good player. He's exceeded my expectations. I'm not sure that you can win a title with him as your top two guy. And if you can move him for a lot of pieces and really kickstart that rebuild around Scoot, if the pairing doesn't work, you just need to clarify that. <laughs> I think that's a really enticing option. I already did warn the aggregators, so you're probably not going <laughs> to get the context that you deserve for that particular take. No, I mean, my take on Brandon Miller is, again, very much the same of that's not anti Brandon Miller as a player. I think he will be a fantastic player for whichever team he ends up on, but it's the thing of, you know, again, I mentioned this in the watch of the Hornets do it two piece and I felt insane saying it, but I also don't feel like it's entirely wrong that it could very much be, you know, I think Brandon Miller is going to be a lot better player than Marvin Bagley, the third, but yes, yes. I mean, there's a lot of similarities between the situations that, concern me and not just as a Kings fan who wishes that the Kings had Luka Doncic and you know saw the team get set back half a decade by not getting him but also just the entire conversation around it seems to be oh you know yeah sure but you know can Scoot really play with uh LaMelo Ball and a lot of the conversation around the Kings was oh can Darren Fox really play with Luka Doncic it's like figure it out take the time take the take the attempt to figure it out right don't just say uh, well, you know, the, I mean, he could be an all NBA guy, but Brandon Miller just fits so much better. It's like, You're right. is that You're, really the way that you should go about your, your philosophy on how to build a team? You're picking second because you have a dog shit team. And if you're drafting for fit, you're going to get fired in the next two to three years. Um, if you're drafting for fit in the top three, you're, you're, you're doing it wrong because you have an awful team. You have to take the best player available. And at number two, Scoot is... Just he's just easily the best player available for me. And I'm in exactly the same boat, which is why I'm so concerned that they're gonna pick Brandon Miller and it's gonna blow up in their face. And then Minnesota's gonna trade up to three and take Scoot Henderson, and I'm gonna have Scoot Henderson and Anthony Edwards and Jaden McDaniels for the next fifteen years. It's gonna be fantastic. And then you woke up. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> All right. Anything else you wanna cover before we wrap this one up? Uh no, just Go, go go check out the No Ceilings NBA Draft Guide, NBA or No Ceilings NBA.bigcartel.com. Uh it's 10 bucks. We put a lot of work into it. Really proud of it. Um if if you have the the means to purchase it and support us, it'd mean the world. Um otherwise, no ceilings NBA.com for written stuff every day. And the info on no ceilings NBA.com is completely free. So if you are in fact in a position where you can't afford to purchase the draft guide right now, you can always check out our written work 100 percent free. Love it. 
All right. He is Tyler Metcalf. You can find him on Twitter at TMetcalf11. You can, of course, find his written work on NoCeilingsNBA.com as well as Canis Hoopus. And you can hear him every Friday on the flagship No Ceilings NBA show right here on the No Ceilings NBA podcast feed. If you've been enjoying the show, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review on whatever podcast player you might be using. That's always much appreciated on our end. And if you have any feedback regarding the deep dives portion of the podcast, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter at NBA Johnson or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.